You're listening to an all-new episode of Self-Made Strategies. Visit selfmadestrategies.com for new episodes, information about our guests, and a whole lot more. Welcome to a brand new episode of the Self-Made Strategies podcast. I am your host, Tony Lopes, and with me today is Elnaz Mogengard. Hey, Elnaz. Hi. How's it going? Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for joining us. Elnaz wrote this awesome book called Roya, which is available on Amazon. Uh, You can get it on the Kindle. You can buy it in paperback. Is it available anywhere else? Yes. So it's uh, available online at Amazon. And like you said, Kindle, it's also available online at Barnes & Noble and a couple of other distributors that I recently discovered that have it as well, like Dymox in Australia, which I think is like an Australian company book distributor or something like that. And um, a couple others. I mean, if you Google it, it'll come up. But the two biggest ones are just Amazon Worldwide. So you can get it from almost anywhere in the world and Barnes & Noble. Super cool. Super cool. And you are not traditionally an author, at least from your educational background. And we'll get into that a little bit. It's really interesting, I think, how your path led to uh, creating and then releasing the book, which makes you such a, an interesting human being and an interesting entrepreneur to talk to. Um, so really excited to get into this. Tell us a little bit about your background and tell us as much or as little as you want to and how you got to writing the book. Sure. So I, I guess I started writing the book um, when I was an undergrad. And at the time I was, you know, going to University of Miami and studying international relations. And I was minoring in journalism and business law. So I always had that, you know, love for writing. So even though I started officially writing it when I was 20 in undergrad, I actually have been writing my whole life. I mean, I've been blogging since high school under various names. I have been writing short stories since I was, I think, in elementary school that I found in my, you know, in my archives since I'm a hoarder. So I've always (laughs) like, you know, pieces of evidence that I would always kind of go on this path. But my life definitely did take a little loop when I decided to pursue other interests. So from undergrad, I ended up uh, kind of taking a year off before I decided to go to law school just to kind of be sure about you know, what direction I wanted to take, what was right for me. And so I did take a year off. I worked on a few creative projects. Um, At the time, I was kind of involved with startups. And I was dabbling with the idea of like, kind of joining one of those and working instead of going to get my law degree. But after a year, I decided to go to law, uh, go to law school. And I would have taken maybe another year just to be sure. But there was some pressure from my parents to kind of make a decision. So Mm -hmm. I ended up going to law school. And I went to uh, GW Law, George Washington Law School in D.C., and I actually finished my book while in law school. Super cool. Super cool. But you had actually started it back in high school. Is that correct? I started writing the book when I was an undergrad. So it was my sophomore year of undergrad. I was 20 years old. And that's when I first wrote the couple like the first couple of chapters. Very cool. Very cool. And then it was through in interaction with one of your professors in undergrad that kind of led you on this path to eventually finishing the book, correct? Yeah, that was the major catalyst to kind of realize that there was something here that I could build upon. I mean, I knew that I wanted to keep writing it, but I never thought it would actually become a book. I thought it would just be something that I would do as a creative, maybe like a short story collection and just Mm -hmm. keep writing like dialogue. And I never thought I would piece them together, which is actually why the entire book is written other than the first few chapters, the, the rest of the book is written all out of order. So I didn't write it chronologically where, you know, I finished the first four chapters and continued. I just would get spurts of inspiration with different dialogue and scenes that I knew I wanted to put in the book. So when I ended up finishing the book, I just kind of took them like a puzzle piece and like rearranged them in different orders until they fit. Um, but I never wrote it chronologically. And I even changed the, the ending last minute because I realized that as I had built these characters, Mm -hmm. I had changed too. So I wasn't the same person and what I wanted to kind of convey with the story changed. So I changed the ending. That's awesome. Really, really awesome. And so essentially the book tells the story of a 22 year old Iranian American woman confronting the shadows of her past in search of lion hearted strength. This is directly from your Amazon description of the book. And essentially she has a heartbreak early on in the story. I've started reading the story. I think the writing is brilliant, by the way. You've done an excellent job with it. And because of this heartbreak, she goes on this path of self-discovery, right? Yes. So how did you find the inspiration for this story in general? So from a lot of places, I mean, the initial idea for the story was that, you know, when I was in 
undergrad, I was going through my own like emotional situation. So I was feeling things and being like an artist and being, I mean, not, I don't know if I'll call myself an artist, but having an artistic heart, which is what I always say, I just see the world very artistically. I, I think that everything has a place and everything has a meaning. So as I was kind of going through my own emotions and kind of processing my own experiences, like I said, you know, to you beforehand, a lot of, um, I just started attracting a lot of people that had similar experiences, but it didn't just have to do with, you know, romantic relationships. It could have been just any kind of like, you know, emotional journey. Like I would be sitting in coffee shops. I would be sitting in various places on campus and people would come up to me and just make small conversation. Like, Hey, is that seat open? Hey, do you mind if I sit on that couch with you? You know, and just kind of would approach me. And then before you knew it, you know, usually I feel like most people ignore each other when they're sitting next to each other. But for me, it would lead to some kind of conversation. And a lot of the book's inspiration came from my own journey, but also from all of the things that people shared with me and patterns that I picked up. So that a bulk of it came from just everything I learned and all along the way. Very cool. Very cool. And when we were talking about preparing for this podcast episode, we were talking a lot about the interesting uh, nuances that a creative takes in creating a project like this or, or, you know, sharing their art with the world as you have and how that's very similar to the creative aspects of being an entrepreneur. Where have you seen, you said you worked with startups a little bit, where have you seen some overlap in the two and what similarities do you think exist? Between being a creator and an entrepreneur? Yes. I would say, I mean, almost everything. I think that an entrepreneur is is a creator by definition. I think that they're visionaries. I think they're constantly, I mean, a huge part of being an entrepreneur is taking something from ideation to production. I think that the only difference in, in between calling yourself an artistic creator versus, you know, an entrepreneur is the stage that you're in. I think when you're writing and when you're expressing something through art, you're technically producing something, but the process is very different. It's very receptive. You're very open to inspiration. You're in that very kind of flowy, just calm creating stage. I mean, even if the emotions you're channeling aren't calm, you have to be a certain level of a groundedness, I think, to create something and to be vulnerable enough to feel to create something that is emotionally moving. I think entrepreneurs are more in the action stage of, of production. You know, they're kind of taking an idea, but then they're constantly doing and refining and they're very concerned with putting out a certain service or a certain product. So I think it's just the difference in the stages that you're in. But I think that an entrepreneur is definitely a creator. And I think today, actually on the flip side, a lot of artists like writers and painters and, um, you know, digital media artists, they're also entrepreneurs because more and more today with the saturation of content, you have to promote yourself. You have to be able to create your own presence and brands among everybody else. So I think both of them have been more intertwined than ever before. Yeah, that's a great point. Absolutely. And I've seen that a lot with your marketing efforts for the book. Obviously, you're you're focused on getting it off the ground. The book was released. Um, let's see, when was the book released? January 21st. January 21st. So a few months out, we're recording this in May. And, you know, what has your experience been like in terms of trying to promote the book, trying to raise awareness of the book and to get people to check it out, read it? It's a unique perspective on an Iranian-American perspective of a young woman kind of confronting not only uh, cultural issues, but also her own self-discovery, right? So how have you been shaping that to make it more palatable or approachable to people? That's a great question. So I think that as far as just typical marketing techniques, in the beginning when I was launching it, um, I decided to have a launch party for it. And I think that people thought that, you know, a launch party would be like a book reading. I think people came, uh, not everybody, most people understood, but I think a few people came thinking that it was going to be something more, you know, have some snacks, read and hear about the book. But I wanted the purpose of the night to not be just to promote the book. Um, and, and of course I did, it was all over the place. And it was, um, I definitely did gave a speech about it, but I wanted people to just come and mingle and have fun. Mm -hmm. And I really made sure that the people that it was open to the public, but I really made sure that it could be as diverse as possible. And I think that I naturally in my own life believe in attracting a lot of people from different cultures. So it was a night where maybe these people don't have things in common other than knowing me or maybe other than being interested in this book or I don't know, coming to the art gallery in which I hosted it in, which was a big deal to me. Um, shout out to Free Market Art Gallery in Atlanta. Um, you know, I know the owners and I, I also believe in art and promoting other artists. So it was a collaboration. Everybody who worked on the whole 
production of the night. And even like with the book process for all newbies in the field, I mean, they were following their passion. So for me, it was really about promoting other, like promoting my book, but also bringing people together. So at my launch party, it was just, you know, we had wine and beer and music. And I had a playlist that went along with the book so that people could kind of hear the music I was listening to as I wrote it. And I just wanted people to mingle. So that was something I did. Of course, I relied on social media a lot to get the word out. But I haven't done any formal, like intense, invested marketing yet. It's been very organic, very word of mouth. I emailed, you know, reached out to influencers and book bloggers and, you know, Persian celebrities who I thought might be a good way to begin kind of getting the word out for the book. But I really wanted it to be more natural than not. So I really wanted to build personal relationships along the way when I reached out to people and to kind of explain where the book was coming from. Awesome. And how has that been going, reaching out to other people for collaboration? You said you reached out to some other Persian celebrities and stuff like that. And when people reach out to celebrities, I think your expectation has to be to some degree, you might get ghosted, you might not get responded to, you might face a lot of rejection, right? How do you deal with all of that while you're trying to stay on course with this goal of getting more awareness to your book? That's also a great question. I think that for me, um, it goes just really back to two things. The first one is I think how much you believe in your own product or your own work. Um, And the second thing is just realizing that it's not personal. So if I was doing this when I was younger, I don't think I would have had the self-awareness or the experience to understand that it's not a personal thing. It's just part of the process. Right. But I think at this stage of my life, I've learned to really become resilient to kind of the rejection in a way. I mean, I have a folder on my desktop of just notes. Like I have a folder of the things that worked out, but I do have a folder, you know, every time I applied to have an article that I wrote, shared on a publication, every time I reached out to a book agent and they didn't respond or they said no. And it's not in a malicious way. It's just that I've realized that when you end up becoming, you know, when you end up getting to where you want to go and you reach your goal, sometimes because of the way our minds are wired, we look back and we say, well, it wasn't that hard. Or like, yeah, I just got lucky, which I think is part of it. But I think that I want to look back and say, well, actually, there was a lot of people who said no before a couple of the right people said yes. So I have like that mindset. And luckily, I think I'm pretty... um, My mom says I have like a quick like rebound, like bounce back rate. Like I might get down for a couple of days if it's a big rejection, like a small, like not ignoring, like small, no answer to my email isn't a huge deal for me. Right. But maybe if it's something I cared about more, like a, not that I don't care about those, but I mean, something that was, there's a bigger loss to me, I guess. Then in those situations, I'll take a day or two to kind of feel it. But then I'm like right back. Nice. Nice. Where do you think you get that from? Or did you build that up yourself? Because, you know, entrepreneurs and and the majority of the people that listen to this, some are artists, some are entrepreneurs, some are, are mixed, like you said. I think they face the same kind of rejection management on a daily basis, right? They're trying to get this product out or this idea or this service or whatever it is out. And to your point, it's very similar to the creative process in that you're trying to create something that hopefully will appeal to others. And then you got to go out and you have to promote it and push it yourself. And then you're going to be facing a lot of rejection along the way. So what, what do you think gives you that ability to be resilient and to bounce back from your rejections on a regular basis? Um, I think it's a few things. I think the first one is that, I mean, both of my parents and most of my friends' parents and most of the people that I know are entrepreneurs. Mm -hmm. So I think to begin with, that has made a huge difference because of the mentality. I've seen these people, you know, I don't know, I, I guess just observing them. It's not even advice that they've given because I don't think anyone's ever written a book in my circle of friends or peers. No one's ever published a book. So it's not that they were able to give me advice. That was very much myself discovering and learning the hard way. But just that attitude of, you know, don't take it personal, put yourself out there. I think I'm just constantly surrounded by people that are telling me, well, what do you have to lose? What do you have to lose? I mean, just do it. Like put yourself out there. So they made it seem really casual. Like I never, I think maybe someone who's never done that might think so much about how it would impact their their reputation if something didn't work out or, or I don't know. I mean, like, I think that a lot of what you're surrounded with shapes how you think. So maybe because of the people around me, I I think they're some of the most successful as far as what they would call for themselves success. Like they seem happy, which I deem as true success. Mm -hmm. 
And I know that they've had many failures. So they kind of inspire me. And then on the other hand, I think it's just noticing how life works because I'm not going to lie. Sometimes when things didn't work out in my favor, I was really disappointed. I was really upset. You know, I I was kind of sulking. But I have seen with my own life experience that whatever didn't work out ultimately like led me to something that was so much better as far as an opportunity or just, you know, noticing why that thing didn't work out at the time that it did. Maybe it wasn't the right time. Maybe it wasn't the right opportunity. But when you see in your own life that pattern and how things always did work out in the best case for you, even if it really hurt the first time around, then you kind of start to trust life a little bit more and just take the chance. Right. So it seems like you have, generally speaking, a growth mindset when it comes to dealing with your rejections and quote unquote failures. You're looking at them as opportunities for growth and opportunities to bounce back, like you said, and and to bounce back with some sense of humility. And then on top of that, you're looking at the big picture. You're not focused on this one rejection or this one, um, you know, hurdle that you have to overcome. You're focused on that big picture, this goal of getting your book out, getting your story out and, and growing that. I think it's awesome that you take that perspective. Thank you. And yeah, I think you summarized it perfectly well. I think that's exactly what it is. And I definitely see the bigger picture. And I think everything else is just the small domino effects that lead you to it. So, And so now are, are you mainly focused on becoming an author going forward? Where do you see yourself going from this springboarding this into something else? What's the what's the big picture look like from here? Yeah, well, I, I can say that quarantine has changed the time, the timing of things a little bit. But right. as far as my own big picture and what I want to continue to persist with is I definitely want to create and write more books. Um, I love writing. I, I truly think that it was made for me and I was made for it. I, I feel like I have such a strong relationship with it. It's been such a special thing that I can do in my life. So I definitely want to write more stories and share more stories. But I also want to, you know, try to do other things. I mean, I really want to, for example, turn this book into a movie. I mean, that's something I've always said. I wrote it like a movie. You know, I, I think that if you wanted to, transfer it to a screenplay, which I'm actually trying to learn right now how to do. Mm -hmm. I think that writing it as a screenplay could really be easily done. And I would love to have it have that extra element of music and sound and just the whole aesthetic that film brings. I think it would really um, bring a lot to the book. So that's something that I would love to do. And of course, I love to be, you know, active in human rights causes and to be involved with that. That's a huge part of my life. And I do that in my spare time. And I try to do that through any kind of creative endeavor I have as well as like a byproduct of it. So yeah, just constantly creating and, you know, being entrepreneurial in what I do. And along the way, you know, who knows, maybe my my opinion will change and I'll want to do even more than that. But I know that I like to stay busy. I like to do many things and I like to really invest myself completely. So, you know, do one thing, do it right, move on to the next thing and just keep going. That's awesome. Love that. And I love how you're already looking at opportunities to create derivative projects or derivative works out of this book. That's awesome. And even the people who have commented already, and you have great reviews on Amazon, people should definitely go check out the book and look at the reviews. Some people are already saying they could see this as a movie. And they're also, I think, commenting at a high level that you're speaking to um, a section of the public that really hasn't had much of a voice in uh, creative writing and creative projects in film. Iranian Americans are certainly one of those uh, subsets in our culture that maybe aren't as well understood by the majority of people. And I know, I think I saw in one of the comments that somebody even mentioned that Anthony Bourdain, when he was doing his uh, traveling show, that when asked what one of the places that surprised him the most was, he quickly mentioned that going to Iran, people were so warm, the food was so wonderful, the culture was so wonderful. So it's wonderful that you're bringing awareness to that. Thank you. Yeah, that's what I was hoping for. And if people see it that way, then even better. I mean, I think that what I really wanted to accomplish with the story, I didn't realize this is what I was doing as I was writing it. But now looking back, I think that one, I really wanted to introduce people to the culture. And like you said, give a population that's often misunderstood a voice. But I also think that what I wanted to show was that, you know, here's an opportunity to learn about a new culture. I placed the protagonist on a trip in Iran. And I think that that was important for people to really understand the landscape and the food and the culture of Iranians in their own country versus just the Iranians they meet abroad. But I think that um, 
at the same time, all of the lessons and what the main characters are going through, those are very universal lessons. They're lessons of self-discovery and healing and, you know, family intergenerational conflicts that are coming up to be resolved. I mean, there's so many things that I think anybody can relate to. So it's kind of also showing that here's the ways that we are different. Let's celebrate it. But here's all the ways that we are having similar human experiences and let's understand it. Right. Awesome. Awesome story. Going back to your um, sort of fork in the road at the end of law school, because I think that's part of it. Obviously, you you know, we talked about this. I went to law school. I'm a practicing attorney as well. But uh, you go to law school, your parents have that expectation that you're going to go to law school and see that through, obviously, and become a lawyer. And it's sort of this traditional idea of what a first generation American, I think, goes through. I'm also first generation. So I, I relate to you there. And how did you broach that subject coming home and saying, you know what, I think I'm going to go pursue being an author instead, or I'm, I'm going to go follow my dreams of creating rather than becoming a traditional lawyer and going down this path? How did you approach that? Uh, definitely, it was uh, something that I had to, I, I don't know, actually, how I approached it, because I think it wasn't something I really thought about. It was just that over the years, um, when I was an undergrad, ever since I was then taking my year off. And then even while I was in law school, I was very open about what I loved about law and what I could see myself doing with it. And what I actually was, what was actually my true passion maybe. So, you know, I, I wouldn't say I don't enjoy law. I wouldn't say that I would never work with it. And I definitely want to use that knowledge and that, you know, degree and that skill set towards something. Cause I think that it would be very beneficial, but I was very, I was always very open with my parents about what really, I mean, made my heart excited. And that was doing creative things and writing. And their whole take on it was, okay, we'll go do a job that's more stable and do whatever you want on the side. So when I came home and was just kind of saying to them, I want to put more focus on my creative endeavors and make them a, a profession. Of course, I think there was some tension there, but I think that it just comes from their background experiences. So the way that we've kind of resolved that has been just through constant I guess, communication. And I think that the biggest thing that worked in my favor is that for the first time, they just saw how consistent I was. Because I'm someone who has many interests. I'm someone who likes to go from one thing and try that and then go to another. And I don't like to kind of feel stuck in any one direction. Mm -hmm. And I think it was my dad who just kind of was the one who brought it to my attention because he had noticed that, you know, this is something that I've just been so adamant and consistent about. And it's the one passion that I've done, you know, everything I could to pursue on whether I was busy in school or whether, you know, I was doing something else that took up my time. And I think they're starting to understand that this is something I really care about. I'm serious about it. And I think that's what they wanted to see. They wanted to see that it wasn't just an idea or a fancy. It was something that I'm seriously committed to and willing to work really hard for. So showing them that I think helped me in kind of explaining to them my decision. That's very interesting. And we talked about this a little bit before, before we recorded this podcast, that you think that the creative process to a degree finds you as much as you find it, right? Can you talk about that a little bit, sort of this mysticism surrounding being a creative? Because I think entrepreneurs would benefit largely from open-mindedness to kind of allowing something to find them, right? Not, not forcing it so much. Yeah. So I think that that belief comes from two different um, two different quotes that I've heard. And the first one is by a Persian poet, Rumi. And he says, what you seek is seeking you. And then the other quote was, um, you know, loosely paraphrased. It was a quote by Paolo Cello, of course, the brilliant author that wrote The Alchemist. And his whole philosophy was that if you have a desire within you to create something or to pursue something, or just even in your personal life, like a calling or a gravitation towards something, there's a reason that that is in you. Because, you know, I love to write, for example, and I feel so drawn to it and I enough where I'm willing to make sacrifices in other areas and take a chance on it, which is not easy. And I think that other people hate writing. So I I have to ask myself, well, why did I have such a strong pull to writing? Or why is it, for example, that I love to work with human rights issues, whereas other people might not, I mean, it's not that they don't want to help, but it's just, that's not something they feel called towards. So I think that what kind of, you know, your life is always trying to meet you halfway. Mm-hmm. So when you have an idea or you have a pull towards something, I think you have to be willing to like get up and work hard and to put, you know, effort into putting yourself on the right path. 
But I think that, you know, the biggest thing is being really honest with yourself about what that first is. And then having the courage to say that I'm willing to kind of make changes or I'm willing to allow my life to change in order to put me in the path that will take me towards what I really want to accomplish and will bring me true fulfillment and success. And I think that decision before we talk about hard work and before we talk about work ethic or any of like anything like that, the decision to say I'm willing to make changes or allow my life to change is so scary because you are kind of letting go of everything you've known and you are exposing yourself to the unknown. And I think the creative process thrives in the unknown. But if you are someone who is not okay with that, making that choice will be the hardest part. Very interesting. I think you put it very succinctly and very accurately. It's not this idea of, you know, just creating a vision board or whatever mystical, you know, just let it happen kind of thing. It's more so being open to it with that hard work, resilience, commitment, and then kind of the the 50-50 yin-yang kind of balance of it all, right? Where it's half of it is you putting in the effort and showing that you're, you're willing to go the extra mile and to work hard to get across the finish line. And then the other half is that strange but delicate dichotomy and balance between taking your foot off the gas at the right time and kind of, for lack of a better term, allowing the universe to take control, right? Exactly. And I think that when I say work hard, I mean, you hear all these, you know, when you listen to all these talks about manifesting and all that, you hear the term that, no, you shouldn't, you know, work hard, you should allow. So to clarify, when I say work hard, I mean that, you know, once you make a choice and once you really have a set intention for something and it comes from a good place, like it comes from a true desire or your heart's desire, I think that the world does kind of come to help you. Like the universe does come to assist you in some way. But where the hard work comes in is when the opportunity arrives, you know? I don't, I don't know if the, if luck is the right word, but maybe just saying it's serendipity. Maybe it's just, I don't know. I don't know what is the right word to use, but sometimes I know that opportunities have come into my life or I know in other people's lives where that wasn't necessarily hard work because it was life kind of giving them, throwing them a bone or giving them something to work with. But it's when that opportunity comes, that's when the hard work comes in because you can get your foot in the right door. You can sit at the right table and you can say the universe brought me here. But if you can't back it up with like the substance, you'll lose the opportunity. So I think that hard work is just really being dedicated and committed and putting your all into something. But I definitely believe that, you know, we're naive to think that we can do everything on our own because I do think there, in my personal belief system, I, I believe there's a higher power in which I call the universe and all that. And I think that um, it is always kind of assisting us as well. Yeah, very interesting. I love the way you've put that. And I think that's part of the reason that we connected and kind of found each other. I saw your post on Rob's 10K Friends at Rob's 10K Friends on Instagram. Rob had interviewed you as part of his project to meet 10,000 people. Rob was a previous guest of ours and I liked it and started reading in the caption. Uh, I follow Rob and read, read the posts that he puts up. I find it really, really interesting that he just goes out of his way to meet 10,000 unique individuals, just regular, normal people like like us. Right. And, uh, I thought it was awesome when I read your story that you went to law school and then decided to take this more creative approach. And, and then we talked and we instantly kind of picked up that vibe that we had this similarity to, uh, openness to creativity, but at the same time, hustle and hard work and putting in your time and showing that, that you're willing to take that opportunity to the sort of, to the end goal, if you will. Yeah, definitely. Um, and and even that whole situation, I mean, I, the way that I was introduced to, to Rob and then, the, well, the way that I was introduced to the woman who then intru- introduced me to Rob in itself was, you know, by chance or serendipity, you can say, and then, then being introduced to you and then ha- now having this conversation. So yeah. I think that, um, yeah, I agree with, with, you know, with the way that you think about a lot of things too. I think we're on the same page about hard work and then also allowing life. And it really just comes down to being open. Like, I, I hope that everyone at some point is willing to be open to life because, you know, we're we're always expecting bad things to happen, but, and I, and sometimes, you know, challenging things do come up, but I think that there's also so many wonderful things that can happen if we just allow ourselves to feel like it's possible and that we deserve it. And it does happen. I've seen it happen. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. Very good point. And so now let's say, okay, you want to write another book or you want to work on another creative project. Were there elements of working on Roya that 
brought about sort of a process for you to get yourself into the creative and flow state? How does that happen for you from a formulaic? And I know that's kind of not, not the best way to put it, but I'm just trying to put this abstract concept into something that we can wrap our hands around. So, you know, what's your process for getting yourself in the zone or into that flow state? So I think that if I were to write another book, I think it would be a different process. So I'm going to go ahead and start by saying the process may be different for the pro- for each project. Mm-hmm. For this book, my process, because I wasn't, you know, I want I knew I wanted to at some point then write a book after I had the conversation with my former teacher who gave me the confidence to pursue it. But even when I was writing it, you know, it was just 100% something that I did when the inspiration kind of hit me. So I guess what I would say for this book, the reason it took so long is because I didn't have a set process for it. But the way that I got into the mindset to start writing was that one day I decided, you know, I made the choice in my head. Okay, I know I'm in law school. I know I'm in this path and I know I'm really busy, but this is something that's really important to me. What can I do to make time for it? So I was like, well, you know, it's still important to have social interactions and do all that, but I can definitely go out less. I can definitely sit home more. I can put myself in this, you know, more concentrated space. So it was just making decisions, first of all, to make time for it. And whether that was 30 minutes a day, 15 minutes a day, I mean, you can surprisingly get a lot of writing done in 15 minutes. So it was just deciding that I will prioritize this in my life versus doing other things that I don't have to be doing. And then for the actual writing, it was just really getting myself to a to a calm place in which I could just let loose and open myself up and be creative. And that it was something actually I recently wrote about on my Instagram about giving people kind of tips for how to overcome writer's block. And I realized that, you know, most people in their life are kind of functioning in a fight or flight mode. And I think that being in law school, especially because of the way the education is structured and the, and the whole purpose of what it's trying to train you to do, you are very, very much on alert. You know, you're being trained consistently, as you know, to work under pressure. Right. So you then go home and you're not, you're never really relaxed. So I had to give myself space to become relaxed by listening to music, working out to get the energy out first, or, you know, just kind of balancing my life and myself to be able to sit and just for 30 minutes zone out and write, not think about any other responsibilities except for just writing in this fantasy world. Yeah, exactly. How long did the book take you to write from beginning to end? Let's say I know you started it sophomore year of undergrad. And so there's a lot of uh, extra sort of factors in there. But did it basically take you the full, let's say five years undergrad, you know, junior, senior year, then three years of law school, more or less? Yeah, I would say that if we're if we're including the years in which I wasn't writing at all, then it was a six year process. Wow. Wow. If we yeah, so that's a good chunk of time. If we're not including the years in which I was not writing, then I, I think it was more close to maybe two years. And that's just, you know, kind of condensing all the time to like how much if I added up all the minutes in which I sat down and really concentrate on writing, I think maybe it would be close to like a year and a half, two years. Wow. Wow. Very interesting. And so did you have I know you've given tips for overcoming writer's block and you've been doing some of that, which is awesome. Did you have those experiences? What were your sort of pseudo failures to getting the book completed that you experienced that you had to overcome? I think that the the number one, um, the number one challenge when I was first writing it is the willingness to be very, very honest in my writing. And by honest, of course, when you're creating fiction, uh, that means a different thing. Honest means being willing to create these characters or create these plots and do them the way that you want to do them, not because you think people will enjoy it a certain way or not because you're afraid that they're going to, you know, assume something if you do. Because, you know, I, I always feel like when you're creating something, no matter what you do, people are always going to find ways to connect what you create to you. Even if it's, you know, a wizarding world, for example, they're going to look for pieces of that person whose mind went there to see what's going on. And I think that that, you know, that fear of being perceived in the wrong way or misunderstood, I think can really affect an author or any kind of creator. So for me, I was, you know, of course, writing this story and people can read it. And even to this day, people who read it, they're like, who's based on your life? You know, like I hear a lot of those comments and I'll correct them on on where there's merit and where there isn't. But I think that um, I just wanted to create a world in which I had the freedom to do whatever I wanted with those characters. But I was afraid that, you know, will will people like it or how would they perceive it? Is it too much? 
you know, whatever. And I think I had to really let go of that and just decide to be free with it and to let my mind go wherever it wanted to and to create whatever circumstance I wanted in the book. And then I think the second thing was just the fear of what if it did become successful. And I think that actually is something that I, on a personal level, have dealt with more. I think that, you know, it's funny, we talked about rejection and failure before, because Mm -hmm. I'm not too, too afraid. I think in my more adult years, I'm not, I wasn't too afraid of failing. I think I was, you know, more so afraid of what if it like took off and what if it was, you know, a good thing. And just the idea of change, I don't know, something about that was just so difficult for me. So I was always kind of worried if things did work out because I was so comfortable with kind of being in the in-between state where the idea of something being, you know, being really working out, I don't know how to explain it was just really weird for me. Like I, I had such a fear of that. And so maybe other people can relate to that, this fear of something actually working out and changing your life in whatever way. And I think that I had to overcome a lot of personal barriers and just get on with it. It's very interesting that you put it that way. And I think you're hitting the nail right on the head that, again, that's one of those similarities between creatives and entrepreneurs where you have that sort of pseudo imposter syndrome, maybe for lack of a better term. I know that's kind of the more modern buzz term or hashtag, but you have this concept of, do I really belong here maybe to some degree? And you have to overcome that as well, right? To really accept no, I do belong here. Obviously, I belong here. If people are buying my book and they're reading it and I'm getting five-star reviews on Amazon, then people are enjoying it and and you've done a great job at that. What did you do to kind of shake yourself out of that? Do you have recommendations for people who are undergoing that kind of pseudo-imposter syndrome, for lack of a better term? Um, I mean, I think that what I would say, because I think that's still something in other areas we're always like working through, but I think my best advice for overcoming it is to really start the process of getting to know yourself, which sounds really vague. But I think that when you're really honest with yourself about what you are most proud of in yourself and and on any level and what you might not like about yourself or what might be a weakness of yours, Mm -hmm. once you are not afraid to explore all aspects of yourself, I call it like the light side, like your light that you bring to the world and also like that shadow side of people. I think once you kind of explore yourself in such a full way, you realize that other people's opinions or other people's kind of energy can't impact you the same. Hmm. So that fear or all that worry or all of that, you know, even inner blocks, like, you know, even your own self-sabotaging behavior, it takes a backseat because you really realize who you are, what you have, what you don't, and you just kind of own it and you move forward. So I think like with anything that you do, um, actually, I would suggest before people embark on things that they really should at least on some level, know themselves, even if it's not total self-awareness. Because I do believe that with great power or with great success or just the attainment of our dreams becomes great responsibility. Mm -hmm. And if you have reached a point where you've already got that success or you've got to what you want, but you haven't done enough character development or you haven't really gone into know yourself in a certain way, you might ruin a good thing. So self-awareness is really important. It definitely builds character. And I think that you need that level, some level of healthy self-love and more confidence to kind of push forward and go after what you want. And then the actual action part of it comes down to just making that decision. One day you have to, I think, wake up, even if you don't feel ready, even if you're scared shitless, you just have to wake up and say, you know, I want my life to be different. I'm not sure how, but I know I really want to do this. And I'm going to start taking small steps every day to put myself in a position where I can really embark on this path. And I think that will make a huge difference in people's lives and how they deal with it may be different. Yeah, I love that. I love that from a mindset perspective. I I think, again, going back to what we were saying earlier, you really just have the epitome of what a growth mindset should be, right? This constant focus on um, loving yourself and appreciating yourself for who you are. But at the same time, again, that weird dichotomy of knowing that you can always be better and you can always improve and there are always little incremental things that you can do to grow. And that does make a difference. I think long-term that really, really affects where you end up and whether or not you're able to reach your goals and whether or not you're able to attain your dreams, as you said. Yeah, definitely. And I think something actually, an advice that I will pass on from my uncle, who I think is just one of the most brilliant entrepreneurs. And it's not because I think his, what he does or doesn't do is the best thing ever. I think that it's his mindset. And he is always saying, you know, at some point, something has to be good enough to be launched. 
And then what you do with it after that is refining. You get feedback, you refine. You get feedback, you refine. Wrong direction, take a step back, change, go to the left. He's like, you always like have the choice to make changes in your life. And his whole mentality is, you know, most people can create the things that they want. Most people can actually be happy doing the things they want, but most people will never start. And he's like, at some point, when you've done all that you can, you just have to accept that it won't, might not be perfect, but it's good enough. And you just got to put it out there. So even with my book, I mean, he was the one that came over one day. He's like, you've been sitting on this book for all these years. Where is it? (laughs) He's like, put it out. And I was like, it's not ready. He's like, put it out, you know, just put it out into the world. And, you know, worst comes to worst, you can make a second edition and tweak whatever you want. He's like, but you just have to at some point put it out. Right. Great advice. And I love that sense of accountability in there as well, where it's, you know, you've been working on this for such a long time. It's never going to be perfect, right? If you're expecting perfection, you're never going to launch. It's just going to, there's always something you can tweak. There's always something you can edit. There's always something you can change. And if you don't just put it out there, it'll never launch. So I love that. I love that concept. How did you deal with that? You know, being a creative, this is one of the things that I think about. And I, I know that you have a, a generally open mindset and that helps because you're more accepting of criticism when you're more open as well, right? That comes hand in hand with that growth mindset. So how did you deal with that sort of added pressure to a degree um, from your inner circle saying, you know, Elnaz, when are you going to launch this book? We're dying to see it, you know, just put it out there. Were there moments where you were really frustrated and sort of, you know, how did you overcome that frustration if you did experience that? Yeah, well, I think that I didn't have a lot of people putting pressure on me to put the book out other than, you know, my uncle who, who just kind of told me how the way, how it was. And I really appreciated it. But Mm -hmm. Most of my friends, I mean, they didn't put all this constant pressure because I think a lot of people didn't actively know that I was writing a book. You know, I've been blogging, I've had articles out, I've been very open with my website and I've done interviews as well, where I've been on the other side interviewing young millennials and I still do that now. But I've always been very open about those endeavors. And I think that I was just um, okay with putting out content and kind of taking my uncle's advice and refining it as I went along. But because the book was just such a, it was just such a different experience, you know, like I wanted when the product was in my hand, it wasn't like something where I could just refine it. I wanted to make sure that final copy was, was so close to being perfect. And so I think that for me, um, I also just kept it to myself for a long time. So only a few of my really close friends and uh, my family members really knew that I was writing a book and I didn't share it with the world until I felt confident enough that I was going to actually put it out one day because I didn't want to say I'm writing a book and then never write a book. So I think that I waited a long time until I was ready. But I think the pressure might have been, I think, just initially from maybe my parents, not so much to do it, but more so of of a place of like, well, we want to see, you know, you say you want to be a writer, let's see a result, let's see a result. So they're very result focused because I think that because of, you know, their background experiences and what they've been through, I totally understand that when you see results, the results equal success to them. And I think that to some degree that is true. I mean, results do equal success, but I think that there's also other factors, but there is a very much an emphasis on the results for them. So I think that there was this pressure of if I'm going to do it, I need to do it now because I'm only going to get busier later in life. That's how I looked at it. So for people who are in school and they say they can't, for people who say they have other things going on, life is never going to get slower. I mean, life is never really going to get less busy. Your responsibilities will only become more but there's always, always a time in which you can at least start something and chip away a little bit by a little bit until you get to somewhere where you want to be, you know, ultimately. So I think that just um, the pressure came from maybe a little bit from family, but mostly just from myself, because I knew that I had, I had this thing waiting on my desktop. And I really, really believe that no matter how many times I'll tell you this, I decided a few times to like throw in the towel and not finish it. I was like, this is not going to be that great. Like, Mm -hmm. I don't think anyone's going to like, what do I have to say that other people haven't read before? And every time I put it away, I think that life kind of brought weird situations in which it kind of like reminded me to continue. So not just with like my teacher, but like, I don't know, I'd randomly be in Ubers and people would start writing about talking about books. And then we would talk about writing and then they would make comments like, have you ever thought about being an author? And this would happen like all the time. Like life kept bringing signs like... It, it was just like little things. Like I can't remember them all now, but it's like everywhere I went in my life, this topic would come up. And finally I was like, well, I think that I should probably just finish this and whatever happens, happens. Right. Yeah. And that's wonderful. When you have those experiences, I think uh, they can be very uplifting. 
for people that have never had them, they can be very skeptical of them. But the interesting, again, dichotomy, and I think that's sort of the overall message here, is that when you're not open to it, they don't find you. And then when you are open to it, those kinds of things do happen, right? Has that been your experience as well? Yeah, definitely. I think it all goes back to where, you know, how open your energy is, for lack of better words, or if you're just kind of like open, open minded, if you don't want to go as far as saying open hearted, then open minded. But you have to at least be willing to believe that it's possible. And I'm not saying everybody who says something to you, you need to overanalyze or take as the word. I think that you should be able to kind of take and take in everything and process what you think is true and what's not. But I have noticed that at points in my life where maybe I felt more stuck or my energy was just a little bit more down and I didn't feel so positive, I didn't get opportunities like that. I mean, I didn't get people approaching me as much. I didn't uh, get people making random comments or opportunities coming to me. And at that stage, it's very easy to be pessimistic and think that it's just not legit that you know things can come to you or happen. But I realized that I think the biggest lesson in all that was learning how to cultivate first like self-belief because I think it everything comes from like how much you believe in yourself so the moment that I started to kind of force myself to be more positive even if I was kind of like down at least thinking okay I'm down today but tomorrow could be different kind of just always being hopeful and keeping that hope alive was a big deal for me and I think that the moment that I did that those kind of like like I said serendipitous moments would sort of happen again and I realized it's because I was in a better place my mind was open and I was willing to be more vulnerable with people. So, you know, I think that's actually a very key word. Vulnerable people think is a bad thing, but when I'm happy or when I'm in a good place, I'm more naturally vulnerable to people because I'm more open to them, but not in a very exposing way. Like it's actually in such a beautiful, connective way. So I think that's, a, that's been a big thing. Like that level of openness and vulnerability has allowed me to connect to certain opportunities or people that would not have happened if I was bitter and closed off and just, giving up on the world. Right. Yeah, it's awesome. Really awesome. Okay, so what can we expect now from Elnaz going forward? I know you're talking about potentially doing some derivative works out of Roya, uh, but currently your focus obviously is on Roya, the book itself. So what are you thinking in terms of timeline? Are you thinking about another book already? Are you starting to shop ideas for that as well? Or are you kind of just riding this wave for now? For now, I'm just focused on Roya as far as books go, because I think that I really haven't really hit the mark where I even have, I I feel like I've only skimmed the surface, you know, it's like the tip of the iceberg with it. And I really want to keep getting it out there and to continue kind of writing the wave for the book, for the book at this time. So definitely continue promoting Roya and sharing it and getting the word out there. Um, I'm also doing an interview series during quarantine, kind of picking up my old um, interviews that I used to do on my website where I'm interviewing young millennials. So in the age groups of, you know, 20 to mid thirties, which is the standard age cohort for them. And what we're kind of discussing in those interviews is kind of what we're, we're doing now, but in a more focused way, it's all about those people who made a 180 shift in their life, or it's just having these casual conversations about, you know, what makes them feel alive? What are they questioning in their lives and having really candid conversations about people's journeys of realizing what they really wanted to do in their life or who they really wanted to be. And the hope for that is that people will listen and see pieces of themselves and try to make those personal or professional changes in their life. So I'm doing that for the time being and then also working just on actual work things. But um, I think a lot of it will depend on how quarantine goes. I think COVID-19 has just kind of thrown things up in the air. Like I had a book, a mini book tour scheduled to happen. I had a couple of book signings in Atlanta. There was all these things that I was planning on doing and I had to really pause, shift the focus and change the plan a bit. So just being adaptable and staying flexible with it. Right, of course. Yeah, and so um, I had a couple questions there. Hold on one second. Okay, where can we find these conversations that you're having with the millennials? Is it in kind of a podcast format? Is it on your blog? Where can we find them? So they haven't been launched yet because I'm still in the series of collecting them. But when they're ready to be launched, they will be available on my website, which is www.millennialnomad with QA. So N-O-M-A-A-D.com. So millennialnomad.com and they will be available on there and they will be in podcast form, but they will also be available on Apple iTunes, Spotify, and perhaps YouTube. I'm not really sure yet. Maybe 
But essentially, it's just kind of having them on all the platforms. But you can definitely reach them first and foremost from my website if all else fails and listen to them. And I, I'm pretty excited about them. In the past, I've done them. I started doing them also in college. So a lot of what I've been interested in started in college. And I used to do them in written form. But I guess because of just, you know, shifting norms and how audiences interact with different mediums, I decided to shift to a podcast um, in the recent months. So that's what I've been doing. And hopefully when that series is done, I will launch them so that they can come out consistently. Super cool. Super, super cool. Can't wait to listen to those. I think that's a really interesting approach. And yeah, podcasting obviously is a great medium in terms of getting stories like that out and making them really digestible. So really excited for you. And so what are you doing in terms of your main gig right now? The book I'm assuming is sort of on the side and hopefully will transition into something that becomes your main source of income. But what do you typically do for income on a regular basis? So right now I'm in between different projects, but before I was doing kind of social media, digital consulting for the Urban Justice Center in New York. Right now I'm still working with them, kind of pop back on, but I'm doing it on a more volunteering basis. Mm -hmm. But for the time being, I'm actually in between. So I'm looking hopefully to be shifting cities. Um, The original plan was to, of course, go to New York, as I'd mentioned to you, but now I may have to rethink that decision just because I don't know when things will be normalized again. Um, But I've also been kind of dabbling with the idea of finding a job and going to California since I was born there and I have some family there and I think it'd be really fun Mm -hmm. to go try that out. Um, So yeah, just, I think I'm looking for the right opportunity and kind of, you know, keeping busy with other freelance work. I do a lot of digital media consulting, a lot of writing, coaching. Um, I never became a doctor, but I have written like 30 personal statements for doctors. So I know (laughs) that I made the right choice by not going to medical school, but I am so, so proud of all the ones that did because we're seeing honestly now how important their work is. But I think that I, I did my part, at least somewhat in my parents' eyes to kind of at least maybe help other people get on the right path with it. So I definitely do a lot of writing, coaching and things like that. But hopefully um, something will work out for the long term in New York or California. Super cool. Super, super cool. So where can people reach out if they're looking for advice on writing or if they just want to reach out to you? Obviously, if they want to buy the book, Roya, you can go on Amazon and type in R-O-Y-A. The book Roya should pop right up or you can Google it, right? Yes, you can Google Roya, um, Roya, and then my name or just Roya, you know, novel. And I think that it should come up, but probably putting my first and last name will make it immediate. Um, but if you go to Amazon and Barnes and Noble and just put Roya, um, it should come up as on the first page of searches. So that's definitely a way to order the book if interested. And as far as, you know, contacting me, you can always follow me on Instagram. Um, it's at Millennial Nomad. Uh, pretty easy. Again, two A's in Nomad. Or they can, so they can DM me, they can email me. Um, my email address is millennialnomad at gmail.com. So they can always email me for longer, you know, chats or anything like that. And I'm always open, you know, once I get to know someone, I'm pretty open to a phone call and chatting. I mean, I'm not a very closed off person like that. So it's pretty easy to reach me if you need me. Cool. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for this time, Elnaz. I thought it was really interesting. Love the book. I'm excited to finish it. And hopefully our listeners will go check it out and read it as well. Yeah, thank you so much for taking the time to have me. And I'm really excited that I got a, be, got a chance to be on your show. So thank you so much. And I look forward to seeing what else you do. Awesome. Thank you. <laughs>